looking at this region from the, the European travel accounts ends up actually reinforcing certain racial notions and um, certain deeply problematic notions of a, uh, a region that sits on the edge of civilization, which is how this area has been painted, right? For the last 200 years, the region begins to eventually absorb that narrative. My name is Walid Ziad. I'm a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a historian by trade. Welcome to Subject Matter Tabletop, the podcast about board games and the subject matter that animates them. I'm Steve Gotzler. I am Jordan Tynes, and we are here today with Walid Ziad, sitting in front of Pax Pamir, the second edition, a design by Cole Worley, who you've heard from as in the uh, designer deep dive section mm-hmm, of our mm-hmm. uh, podcast, and uh, published by Worley Gig Games. We are excited. Very excited. We're here in Chapel Hill. We're in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Dr. Ziad is an assistant professor in uh, religious studies here at UNC. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I am excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And this, uh, this game is very intriguing. It's a pleasure to have it on the table finally and somebody who um, can talk about it is with us, right? Because it is a, compli- a complicated game. Maybe we're at, we should just say really quickly the sort of mile-high story of this game so sure. we kind of frame everything with what's going on here. Mm-hmm. It is a representation of a historical moment, would you say? It's a historical moment. It's a... Um geopolitics and uh, sort of local histories of Afghanistan sometime in the early part of the 19th century. That's what it looks like to me yes, sitting here. Early, like 1820s, I think, something exactly. like this, right? Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah 1820s. Okay. Um, in, an era call known as, or a geopolitical moment known as the Great Game, colloquially? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Can you maybe, uh, just for the listeners and for us, quite frankly, maybe just t- tell us a little bit about like where that notion and that phrase comes from and what it usually like connotes? What is, what is the great game? Basically? Sure. Um, it's an informal sort of term that we use for an absolutely fascinating geopolitical moment. And it's a term which I think Rudyard Kipling is one of the first to oh, okay. bring this out into public consciousness. Then there are several others who talk about it in the late 19th century, um, Lord Curzon is one of them. I think Henry Rawlinson is another. Who's on one of his cards? Yeah, Henry Rawlinson oh, is in yeah. this game. Yeah. Okay, okay, all right. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> um, uh, so the, the idea is that over the course of the 19th century, the two great military powers, uh, that is uh, Britain as the, the sea power and um, Russia as the <clears throat> with the largest army in the world, after peace in Europe, are now basically playing their battle out on a different chessboard. Mm. And that chessboard is now, in fact, the rest of Eurasia. Mm. So it's normally seen as the game that's played between these two powers that arguably actually goes on all the way into the Cold War, which is Mm. kind of like a part two of the great game. It's broken up into two elements, uh, generally. One is called the Eastern Question. What do we do with the Ottoman Empire and the pieces that are breaking out of the Ottoman Empire and the pieces that we as Britain and Russia are breaking out of the Ottoman Mm -hmm. Empire. Mm -hmm. The other side of this is called the Great Game, and that's really the struggle for Central Asia. So what happens, it's, it's a much longer process, but 
over the course of the 18th and the 19th century, you sort of see these two great waves. One wave is sort of spreading into the Kazakh steppes, settler colonialism of Russia, building forts along certain rivers, moving closer and closer towards Central Asia. And on the other side, you've got Britain in the form of the East India Company that takes Bengal in the, in the 1750s and the 1760s, and then slowly starts inching through a whole different sort of maneuver. Like there's several different types of, of games that are being played here. They start inching westward. And then eventually you have just a kind of sliver of states that are left in between. So the, um, I think Curzon talks about it as a sort of checkerboard on, on which this grand game is played. And the general idea for Britain and Russia was that you have a smattering of states that are in between these two great empires that are actually too weak to take over their neighbors and too strong to be taken over. And therefore, they are reliant on the great powers for mm. ultimate support. And Afghanistan is actually, as the nation state we know it today, is actually a byproduct of that game. Oh, okay. This, this, mm. this whole region, um, sort of, let's say, greater Afghanistan, are the designated buffer states of the game. Russia will not go below a certain river, which is the Oxus River in, in northern Afghanistan, and then Britain will not quite go beyond the... Khyber Pass, which is the road between, in fact, it's in uh, northwestern Pakistan, eastern Afghanistan, which is the, the great historic pass that uh, connects the city of Peshawar today to the city of Kabul. But, of course, multiple sort of creative mechanisms are then used as to how to extend power into that buffer zone and to make sure that buffer zone does not actually fall into one set of hands or another. Mm. It's fascinating to know that also that this political, this geopolitical moment was characterized conceptually as a game in contemporaneous discourse, not just historiography after the fact. Now, here's the issue behind this. It's characterized as such within colonial contemporaneous yeah. discourse. Yeah. Right. And this is, I mean, it's a big issue. I'm a historian of Afghanistan and broader South and Central Asia. And uh, the work that I do, really starting from the I do some ancient work as well, but let's say the, the second portion of my work begins in the 18th century and really arguably goes on until the present day. The problem with looking at the region as a game or as a problem, these two terms are used, means that if you treat a region as a game and a problem, the reality that re becomes the reality, right? Mm -hmm. That paradigm actually replicates itself on the ground, and sooner or later people believe that they are just pawns in mm -hmm. a broader game and that they themselves have no agency and perhaps never had any historical mm -hmm. agency, mm -hmm. um, which is, in fact, what all of my work fights against. Mm. Look at who's on the ground in, in this game. And I really, I think the game is awesome, so I do not want to unnecessarily criticize sure. it as a uh, obnoxious academic here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but look at the pieces on this board of the, the 1820s, and we can compare it to this region as is treated today. We talk about these sort of tribal leaders who are vying for power, but they're really the only two sort of civilized states in the region who are managing this uncivilized zone are Britain and Russia. And you see the same discourse actually playing itself out in the recent wars in Afghanistan, that who's the tribal leader of Kabul? Who's the tribal leader of Herat? Let's go to that tribal leader. And my work actually says that if you really want to understand what's happening, you need to turn away from both the colonial sources as well as from the Royal Chronicles. I can give a broader history of this if you like. That would be great. Please, okay. Yeah. Sure. So in the um, 
mid-18th century, this particular, let's say, the larger region from Persia to Central Asia, arguably going all the way up to Siberia and uh, Western China, and in fact, uh, moving into what's modern-day Pakistan and India, the great empires that ruled over this region started fracturing for various reasons. Part of the reason is because there was so much wealth that local power brokers and um, traders and um, spiritual figures ended up actually wielding a lot of influence and could pull themselves out of the orbit of a lot of the central sort of large states. There is a last-ditch effort by a Persian conqueror in the um, 1730s, and this is kind of the backdrop to this game. I noticed that it referenced this, and his name is Nader Shah. He was this kind of came out of nowhere, and he tried to, uh, on his own way, um, bring together this region from really the Caucasus and Iran all the way into India and Central Asia. And before he could actually bring any cohesion, he was killed. Hmm. And then what we have is, from the 1750s onwards, we've just got this region fracturing into different sorts of states. And it's a fascinating set of states. There's there are states that are older, let's say, familial confederacies. There are states made up of charismatic uh, scholars. There are certain states that are, um, um, I would say, uh, you know, mountain principalities um, mm -hmm. led by, let's say, certain people of influence from before. Now, it's in this mess. Now, when we're looking at it from the point of view of the local courts, it looks like a total mess. It yeah. looks like a period of decline, quote unquote, and that's how it's characterized, that this is a backwards region. Each of these states are very isolated. They are geographically isolated. They're culturally isolated. And now it's a decline. So basically, Britain and Russia have to come in in the civilizing mission and sort this this issue out. I'm exaggerating, but you, you get what I'm mm -hmm. saying here. Mm -hmm. Now, what I do in my work... Um, is that I actually just turned this on its head. And I turned to a whole bunch of sources focusing particularly on the Sufis, the mm. mystical orders and the scholarly classes, who, I argue, when this world is breaking up, they're actually part of, as, long, as well as the traders, and they're actually linked in with the, with the trading classes, Muslim and Hindu and Armenian and Jewish as well. They sort of form this, what you'd kind of call a, a civil society glue that brings together this world from, let's say, the Kazakh steppes in Siberia and the Volga in Russia all the way to, to India. Wow. With Afghanistan, really, as the fulcrum where all of this happens. And it's in the 18th and the 19th century where through a lot of these networks, I should mention they're doing a lot of functions. So they are educators, they are mystical guides teaching meditative practices, they are philosophers, they're also traders. They're also political brokers. They are also um, poets. Uh, they are also uh, judges and mm. religious scholars who are resolving problems in their, in their vicinities. When you turn around and look at all of these non-state actors, you actually realize that this is a very, very interesting, flourishing period where all sorts of different pedagogies, ideas, and cash are actually flowing through these great cities like Kabul, like Kandahar, which host communities as diverse as, I was just reading this a few days ago, that in Kabul in like the 1780s, someone is traveling there and you have a very vibrant Armenian community, uh, several synagogues in Peshawar and Kabul. You've got, in fact, they mentioned that they're very, very open in terms of alternative faiths um, and a whole bunch of different languages that are coming together to actually form this particular, um, this particular city.
So this picture um, of what I would, of course, argue is what's happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. becomes totally muddied when you're heading towards the either the desperate political parties who are trying to carve out a space and a limited space within this particular kind of new world of the 18th and the 19th century, and certainly of the British and Russian travelers, spies, agents, which neither understand what's going on beyond take me to your leader, Mm -hmm. which is very similar to what we've seen in the last couple of decades. Like, who's the governor of this? Who's the governor of that? Who's the warlord who does this? And people love the warlords, and it's also very exotic. Mm. It's a... These sort of like uh, exotic, almost farcical um, kind of uh, uh, figures who we love to take photographs with. Here's the barbarian that I'm standing next to. Either looking at it from their vantage point or looking at it from the British and Russian vantage point actually ends up obscuring what I would argue is a really a time of a kind of cosmopolitanism and a flow of ideas, which Eurasia has of rarely seen or sees in bursts in, in mm-hmm. various stages. Uh, you know, you're, you're sort of characterizing the popular misconception of a period of decline in this area. And to clarify, I guess, is it that you're saying, if we look at the sort of broader tapestry of all the people and the things that are happening in the sort of maybe not dominant historical narrative that's being less recorded, perhaps, mm. would be an indication that of the opposite of that, that there's a very prosperous mm. community of people and ideas and it sounds like wealth as well that flowing through this area. Yeah, absolutely. What I, The corollary to that is when, and please, I really don't want to critique the game in this sort of mm. underhanded way here. I think the, the game looks fantastic and I can't wait to play it. But the overall approach of the looking at this region from the, the European travel accounts and from, which is generally how it's dealt mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. Uh, or from the uh, vantage point of, again, the, the take me to your leader approach ends up actually reinforcing certain racial notions, actually, and um, certain deeply problematic notions of a, uh, a region that sits on the edge of civilization, which is how this area has been painted, right, um, for the last 200 years. And then, of course, once a region is painted like that for long enough, the region begins to eventually absorb that narrative. Mm-hmm. I welcome this sort of critique of the game, and that's why we're here, right? right. Uh, and the game is, uh, I think what the, one of the good things about the game is that it actually is thoughtful enough to stand up to a good deal of critique. I don't know how much of this you are aware, but within board gaming especially, but gaming more generally, right, representations of the Middle East or near or far east, really anything east, not west, are deeply problematic and have been the territory of the worst kind of sort of racial notions that you're talking about, the easy place where they get reproduced totally unconsciously. Um, and I think what this game's modest intervention is within the frame of like Imperial Conquest, which is a familiar genre of board gaming, is to simply flip the sort of dynamics of the game yeah. so that we are still playing a game. It's still a game with Take Me to Your Leader and Conquest and Spies and Betrayal, etc. But what we're doing now is the British and the Russian become the pawns. Yeah. yeah, so I would totally agree, which is why I was drawn to this when you brought this across, because there are there are two layers of this critique, right? The first layer is to recognize that, okay, the internal political actors have agency, and there is a game being played. And perhaps we should look at that game from the vantage point of these local courts and actors who are undoubtedly free-thinking agents who had their own, in fact, sort of strategic aims in mind. And then I guess what... I am 
doing is sort of that one step further, sort of that is the first layer of critique and the, the second mm-hmm. layer of critique mm-hmm. becomes um, what is happening even beyond these mm-hmm. two circuits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you doing that outside of playing this game, right? You're like, how are you, how are you in talking to us on this podcast? What is your process for doing this reversal, this flipping of the narrative and trying to get people to look at it from a new perspective? So there are several elements to this. Um, One is just the very way in which I do research. I don't hit the central archives and I will certainly not hit the European archives Mm. until the end. So what I'm basically doing is traveling, and I think I've done about 140 towns now in, in Central Asia, Afghanistan, and wow. Pakistan in the last, like, 10 years. 140. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. probably in, like, now. And over a decade's of wor- worth of work. About, a, yeah. yeah, a decade plus wor- worth of work. I-, I love it, so it doesn't really seem like a job sure. to me. In my case, I am hitting uh, monasteries. I'm hitting madrasas, where the knowledge is actually compiled and gathered, private collections, you know, families of note. Um, and then also paying very close attention to the very spaces in which a lot of these things played out. My book, Hidden Caliphate, which is actually on sovereignty, it's about reconceptualizing sovereignty Mm -hmm. in this very space with Mm -hmm. Afghanistan dead smack in the center. Really, it goes from Siberia all the way to, let's say, the Indian Ocean with Afghanistan as this fulcrum. So here I focus on networks of scholars and mystics and how they deal with the rest of the population. And I begin actually... Uh, The first page is an account of a very famous European great gamer. Mm. And his name was William Moorcroft. I bet he's got a card in this game. He should. He he should. Uh, He's (laughs) about to die, actually, at the end of this game because he's... uh, uh, He he ends up... um, um, His life ends up shortened. Mm. Uh, But he is definitely there, and he's the first one to make it to Bukhara, which is now in Uzbekistan, amongst the Europeans. And so he's ostensibly in search of horses, but there's a lot more going on. He's gathering data. So I kind of follow the way in which he uses intermediaries to work his way from actually the Himalayas and Ladakh, um, all the way down to, let's say, the Khyber Pass and uh, sort of through what is today India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and eventually Uzbekistan. Within that simple narrative, I basically mentioned that all of the people who are really making his journey possible are these great sages of the time, these mystical teachers, who are also acting as the diplomats. They're also negotiating between courts, and they're seen as the honest brokers Hmm. who can broker between trading communities and really mendicants in cities who require help to tribal areas, to mountain areas, and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, And they're moving large distances, like distances that one can't quite imagine today, like the way these networks are put together. Mm -hmm. So then I I turn around and I say that this book is not about Moorcroft. It's actually, Moorcroft is a small player in a much bigger game. Mm. Who are these people who are making the journey possible, who are but footnotes and obscure Mm. figures in most of the narratives we know Mm -hmm. today? So... This book actually deals with one of those big networks, uh, which is based in Peshawar and Kabul and several other uh, cities in in the region. It goes all the way to Russia. And my next book, uh, which is almost complete, is on female scholar saints of these networks. Uh, As I discovered in 1770s in 
uh, Kabul, actually in Afghanistan as a whole, the most influential religious leader at the time, or I should say the scholar, religious leader, um, mystic. He was basically had networks from China to the Indian Ocean and based in Kabul. He passed on his network, as in the spiritual inheritor of his, of his network was a woman. And then as I delve deeper into this, it turns out that coming out of the Afghan empire, which is the subject of this book, at the very time when this particular game is being played in the 1820s, some of the largest religious networks in the broader empire are actually led by women. Mm-hmm. And they've been completely obscured mm. from our hist- history imagination. Um, the narrative has no place for them. And they've got followings of hundreds of thousands and are also political power brokers in this mm-hmm. game, which is why I appreciated there was the, the she pronoun that was used for one of the uh, religious characters mm. in this game, mm. which we could get oh, to later okay, on. Great, <laughs> great. Yeah. So you've spoken a little bit about this already, but we're curious to hear your expectations for a mm. game like this. And also, maybe your concerns. Yeah. And Hesitations. So my concerns are, I hope I can learn to play this fast. <laughs> um, there are a lot of moving parts here, and it looks, uh, uh, it looks very uh, beautifully complicated. Mm, that's um, a good way to describe mm-hmm. a worthy my, gig game. Yeah. Uh, my uh, expectations are actually to see a game that takes place ostensibly in what I believe is my backyard. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. where I work, mm-hmm. right? And, and I like the idea that I mean, each of these things means so much. Um, like when you talk about, you know, even the, the bazaar right now, mm-hmm. uh, and this is where I think there'd be limitations, but also, you know, opportunities for you know greater expansion and sort of thinking beyond. The bazaar is also home to the great uh, Hindu merchant communities that the Duranis had actually specifically empowered who ended up running most of the banking activities from St. Petersburg to Bengal. Mm. Oh, wow. And they were based in a city called Shikarpur, which is now, it's a a random city now in Pakistan. Even Shikarpuris don't know what it is. But Mm. there are two books on Shikarpur under the Duranis as this banking capital and these empowered, I mean, they are mega, mega merchants. Mm. Um, (laughs) So the bazaar is not just about, you know, buying and selling cabbages. Um, It's about... Uh, vast merchant networks and bills of exchange and actually a grand trade that's going from St. Petersburg down to mm, down like to India. Modern day Wall Street or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. And I think, that, but I, I have a feeling that several of these things have been captured. And of course, there are limitations to the degree and, you know, how much complication you can actually have in a game like this. But I'm excited to see each of those things and then perhaps throw in my 18 cents about what Mm -hmm, these things mean to me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Before we even engage with it as a game, just looking at it, Mm, is it doing anything for you right away in this area of how this region, this time period, this history, these people are being represented? You know, the images uh, are actually quite fascinating uh, because I know that the uh, authors of the game themselves had drawn attention to the fact that the images are coming, I think, mostly from Rat Ray and a, a couple of mm-hmm. other That's right. um, well-known artists. But they're actually good images. I mean, I would sometimes go to those images in order to conceptualize a space. Mm. So I don't think it's a... In fact, just recently, I was taking one of the etchings from the 1840s and showing it to an Afghan... Sufi master in exile. Mm. 
and he loved it. He's mm-hmm. like, can you please get this for me? Oh, and I was like, that's just really expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, I mean, he pointed out something interesting and something wrong in there as well. There was some mm. ritual that was not supposed to be there. But uh, all in all, he, he liked it. So I think the imagery is, is quite fantastic. And I think the imagery, especially the, the two big artists that they've relied on, are go-tos for scholars in the field. Mm because mm-hmm. they were recording something. Of course, we can problematize it afterwards, but sure. you know, we're all intelligent enough to do that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that really stood out is just it's breaking that, I mean, even the, the board itself is, this is very selfish of me, this is similar to how I conceptualize the space. Oh. Mm-hmm. You've got Kabul, Kandahar, Herat. I'll put a few more in there, but I mean, how many can you have? And then Transcaspia, which would be Transoxiana, the three big khanates there, and the rising state of Punjab. So because the very idea of Central and South Asia, which is a colonial idea, mm-hmm. splitting up this zone, mm. it's actually really where Russia ends and where Britain starts. And Afghanistan, that's why it's uncomfortably caught in the middle. Mm. Um, and the nation-state narratives that have become so powerful now that there is a nation state of Pakistan, of India, of Afghanistan, of Uzbekistan, and each of them have their own histories and identities, which is just simply untrue. Hmm. I like the fact that the map doesn't do that. Mm. And you don't, there's no forcing of boundaries. People like to sort of draw quote-unquote detailed boundaries when boundaries as we conceive of them today didn't actually exist. So I like the fact that the boundaries are kind of rounded yeah, and that they're amorphous. And I also really like the fact that it's not oriented this way in the sense that we're not looking at it from how we look at the globe today or the map today. Ah. It's a slightly different orientation. It's not cardinal. Exactly. It's not. Yeah. That's the right word, which mm-hmm. I couldn't come up with. Yes. The last thing that we'd love to hear from you about before we get into it is it'd be great if you could share with us, you know, have you, do you have any experience with board games, with even things like Monopoly or Scrabble? Did you play, you know, any dice-based games or like tiling sports. games, sports, anything? Yeah. I thought about this beforehand, yeah. and my first reaction was I haven't played in such a long time, and then I thought about it, and I realized actually games have played a fairly big role mm-hmm. in in fact, what I even do today. Okay. So I'm going to mention a couple of things. Um, when I was in fourth grade and I was turning nine, my obsession, or maybe ten, my obsession was with the royal game of Ur, of Ur of the Chaldees, the supposedly the oldest game in the world, the Mesopotamian mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. I love the aesthetics. I love the mystery of it. And I forced my parents to get me a hand sort of made, painted wooden replica of the game for my fourth birthday. And that was... I still have it, and it's still like sitting on a mm. central table in mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. Um, in my room. And I think that the mystique behind that game really got me into ancient history, which is also part of what I do. Uh, the other thing I totally forgotten is when I was in fifth and sixth grade. This is completely uh, ripping off Tolkien and lots of <laughs> other things in my life and my budding interest in, in ancient um, history was I created my own role-playing game and a really complicated oh, one. Um, get out. Okay, and it you'll was be a, fine. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, I mean, the rules were very amorphous, I, I will mind you, but I had a huge map, really detailed oh, map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then histories of each place uh-huh. and, you know, everything that goes yeah, back. The language, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. one has to, mm-hmm. and the kind of uh, 
in between, because I was studying calligraphy at the time, so in between Gothic calligraphy and Persian calligraphy and the Elven ruins, oh, and incredible. you know, it all sort yeah. of goes together in, in a complete rip-off hodgepodge. Uh, yeah, so I had that, and I think I enjoyed the aesthetics of that more than the actual play. Mm. Sixth grade, a friend of mine really got me into the Warhammer, the fantasy mm-hmm, side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, I never played it, but I loved painting the pieces, the and I loved making the, the castles yeah. and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. We so, tried our hand at that just yeah. a few months ago. We painted yeah. some minis yeah. last, right. last August. Yeah, it was a great time. 80-20. 80-20. And I think all of that just transitioned into my love of ancient artifacts and uh, of history. So... I think it just was a natural transition from yeah. there directly into ancient coins first and then sure. lots of other things. And really excited about these coins, yeah, by the, the way. Yeah, what are these coins doing for you? What did you notice about them? Okay, all right. So this is, um, it's a... Uh, We're right. looking at metal coins. Yeah. Yes. All right. So these nice yeah. should Heft. be... Uh, <laughs> Audio feature. We are... This is what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> these should be uh, 11 or 10.9 gram uh, okay. rupees of Shah Shujal Mulk uh, Durrani. Uh, who is uh, one of the last of the uh, Muhammad Zai kings. And what's interesting about this is, uh, in fact, he's the one who the British uh, put in place in the first Anglo-Afghan war. Mm. And this is, I'm giving you far more information than you need, but the mint here is a state called Bhavalpur, which is actually... Not on this map. It would be around here. Okay, just off the edge. And... It was a break-off state, and this is actually minted by the Abbasi kings of Bahawalpur, who tried to recreate their capital city as the second Baghdad, and still minted coins under the name of the Afghan kings. So it sort of shows how the influence of, hmm. of the, the Afghan empire kind of stayed on well after it broke apart. And this would have been, because it's year one, it would have been probably... I think made off of a presentation piece that was meant to be given to courtiers in the court of Bahawalpur. Mm. This is cool. So it would have been <laughs> it would have been useful in this historical moment. Totally. Yeah. 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 yeah this you could spend it anywhere in this in this ah, realm. Yeah. Okay. There's other pieces here, right? These are little resin blocks and yeah. these wooden pieces. The map, the is, map cloth. is cloth. That's yeah. Right. All yeah. this stuff, I mean, just makes this it feels materially uh, significant. It feels like there is some sort of attempt at representing a material culture. And my question for you is, does that feel re- respectfully handled? Absolutely. I yeah. think aesthetically this is, this is brilliant. I mean, this, this looks like a you know, mat or a rug. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's the aesthetics that actually first drew me to this, just that really interesting sort of combination of a lot of motifs that you will come across, and they've been kind of placed everywhere, right, Mm. these motifs. Mm -hmm. And even the the nature of the calligraphy that's used, it's very, very fine. Nastalik is is the the name of this particular calligraphic hand. On the uh, cover on the box. On the cover of the box is, is actually... It's not that kind of farcical Arabic that you often see, that okay. kind of like uh-huh. you know, Arabian Nights farcical yeah, yeah, Arabic. Yeah. I mean, someone has obviously gotten this done by a master calligrapher. Yeah. So all throughout, I think, uh, I mean, I like the mountains here because immediately mm-hmm. you think of the Tolkien maps. Yeah, and, right. Um, yeah, it's very evocative in that way. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of this stuff. And I think really, I mean, what stood out to me was, was really the coins because yeah. they are excellent depictions of very real artifacts that would have been uh, used at the time. Great. Amazing. I think we should give it a play. Yeah, let's get into it. 
Pax Pamir is a game about geopolitical conflict in Afghanistan during the early 19th century. Players take on the role of Afghan leaders navigating a landscape of conflict, coalition, and betrayal as they manipulate interloping European powers following the collapse of the long-standing Durrani Empire. Within this context, players must choose to align themselves with one of three coalitions, the imperial interests of Britain or Russia, or a nascent Afghan movement seeking to end foreign interference. Gameplay is structured around three mechanics, which include tableau building, where players compose a court of cards in front of them featuring notable figures and locations, area control on a central cloth map where players use their court to manipulate the presence of coalition forces in the region, and a market where players vie to purchase new cards in a near-closed economy. These systems elegantly overlap to create complex moments where players must recognize subtle opportunities and anticipate their opponent's next moves. Periodically, an event called a dominance check occurs, at which time the balance of power on the map is evaluated. If any one coalition has a significantly commanding presence, then they are declared dominant, and those players currently loyal to that coalition are rewarded. This requires players to constantly consider their alignment and be ready to shift their loyalty from one coalition to another at a moment's notice. On their turn, players may take at least two actions. Two basic actions are always available. First, purchasing a card from the market, and second, playing a card to your court. When a player adds a card to their court, it triggers a series of variable effects that alter the conditions of the game. For instance, taking control of regions to extort bribes from other players, using spies to take their opponent's cards hostage, and manipulating coalition pieces on the map by building roads or amassing armies. As the game progresses, players will gain access to additional actions granted to them by the cards in their court. These card actions allow players to further influence the struggle for dominance, and to interact with their opponent's court. For example, by betraying cards, which is essentially removing them from the game, by levying taxes to gain more money, adding or removing coalition forces through battle, or expanding their influence over their allied coalition by purchasing gifts and claiming prizes. Each game of Pax Premier ends one of two ways. Over the course of the game, there are a maximum of four dominance checks. While successful checks reward players with points for their influence over a specific coalition, unsuccessful checks reward players who are the most deeply invested in all the different types of political maneuvering offered throughout the game. If any one player is ahead of the rest by four or more points following a dominance check, then that player is immediately declared the winner. Otherwise, after the fourth check has been resolved, the player with the most points wins. Pax Pamir does not allow the players to assume the role of the coalition forces. This is a key feature that distinguishes it from most other games that depict conflict and war. Players influence military conflicts, but do not actively participate in them. Players cause conflicts to occur, but are never at the center of the fight. This creates an important positionality rarely assumed by war gamers that of an active influencer over the war without being an active participant in the warfare. It also turns the narrative logic imposed upon this historical period on its head, creating a situation where the imperialist powers rather than the local tribal leaders become the pawns in a great game. Pax Pamir is nothing short of an aesthetic masterpiece. Everything about the game's physical components has been carefully considered and manufactured. This has a profound effect on the experience of play. For example, 
Sitting around or standing over the cloth map and manipulating the resin coalition blocks encourages a feeling of role play that reinforces the reversal of the dominant historical narratives used to describe this geopolitical event. In other words, the game as an object helps the players more easily take the perspective of the local Afghan leaders who are carefully plotting ways of manipulating the imperialist forces. Additionally, each card in the game displays beautiful period artwork and informative flavor text about the person or place featured on the card, drawing the player in and encouraging a thoughtful exploration of this historical moment. Even the game's currency has been researched and authentically replicated, making those pieces almost impossible to put down while weighing the decision about which cards to purchase. While many of these aesthetic features don't have a direct impact on the game's mechanics, the depth of immersion into the world created by Pax Pamir enhanced our appreciation of its design and the message it conveys at nearly every level. Oh man, I know where this is from. It's from the court of Khiva. That's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Still there? Yeah, very much. Yeah, the whole thing is just like a like a mile of blue. Yeah. This will allow me, let's say I, I take the Kabul Bazaar, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So this will allow me, I gotta pay for it for one, and mm -hmm. I put that where on top of this? Yes. Um, he can actually, he has the ability to wave it. We can ask him to wave it. He doesn't have that's, to. That's a rule in the game. We can say, <laughs> okay. no, you don't have to pay. Oh, another British Patriot, look at that. Okay. Okay. Let's put it in there. Punjab, that's though. Okay. That's not good for me. Or it means you know all of these names. Pretty much all of yeah. them. Yeah. 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 Except, uh, I mean, a couple are like, yes, at some stage I would have read about them in comps, but the vast yeah. majority of them are like, yeah. I know them very well, yeah. Vicious. Well, I gotta do something here. It's tied now. I can play this. Hardly vicious. I can play this guy. <laughs> Sorry? Um, I pay you one? Yeah, you pay me one. Or and... you could wave it, George. No, I'm... <laughs> no, 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 come on, let's see. I've not seen the uh, use case in this game for that rule where someone's like, yeah. Why did you play the... You bought the purchase the dominance card? Yeah, because I didn't want to lose at least the tie. Okay. Uh, you know, I you're weak. Yeah. So half my time is just like reading and and um, yeah, these are all like friends of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. What's he's up, with a, Alexander Burns? He's a bit of a wretched character, but his his whole sort of like career was built on sort of uh, very kind of underhanded deceit. Um, well, it's funny his special abilities that he's a strange bell bedfellow. Oh no way! Okay, for spy travel, your street card. Okay. He just killed. He just killed my poor Josiah, who came all the way from Philadelphia or something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've obviously won. Three. Now it's still only a two-point differential. I'm stuck on zero because I'm committed to these fascists over here. So, uh, so. Um, We just finished playing Pax Mamir. It was an interesting experience. It got pretty cutthroat at one point. Yeah, it uh, did. But now that we've had a chance to play the game for a while, we'd love to hear from you a little bit about uh, reflection on your experience of the game, given your um, unique position as a subject matter expert in this area. The first thing is in the sort of like language of your field, the language of your research community, how would you describe the story of this game? I mean, this is, it is a theme. Um, it's a consistent theme in the studies of, of great game that, like when you're studying Persia, mm -hmm. 
Persia is a very interesting case because Persia is, despite sort of full-fledged efforts by Russia and Britain to gain control over that landmass, mm-hmm. the kings in the 19th century, who are otherwise seen as rather ineffective and weak kings, are actually not appreciated for their ability to be able to play Russia against Britain and mm-hmm. to maintain the integrity of a weak state amid such ridiculously difficult odds where there are mm-hmm. economic games being played as well as military games being played. So are you getting that from our play session? I am. So, I mean, keep in mind that in the course of this, you know, half of my energy was spent trying to figure out all the moving parts. Of course. Yeah. And then the other half was like, ooh, what does this say on it? Um, and actually reading the cards and seeing what figures um, show up on this. But I think that just the very the situation of the game, right, that who the players are immediately forces you to rethink that particular narrative. The fact is, very simply, that you are moving the British and the Russian pieces. Is that what you find when you turn, or what we, you know, in the collective sense of these historians since the turn of like the late 80s, 90s, find in those other archives from the actual region? Do they find a similar sense of positioning the great powers the way that the great powers administrative archives position to the people in the region as like just a set of pieces to be moved in alignment with emergent interests? It transforms mm-hmm. over time. And I think that the... Um, the early part of the 19th century is quite fascinating because a lot of people are trying to figure out, okay, who are these new entrants into the game? Mm. And, okay, so we've heard about the British. Like, let's say, you know, any of these figures who are, we talked about Moorcroft, we talked about... Um, Charles Mason. Charles Mason. There was Alexander a, Burns. Burns uh, Henry is there. Flashman. Yes, <laughs> Mr. Flashman, <laughs> who's the, the uh, fi- uh, fictitious, yeah. fictitious yeah. character. Josiah the Pennsylvanian, yeah. Josiah the Pennsylvanian. So I think that there is a, a level of trying to assess who these figures are and their reputation of their, let's say, their backstory. In other words, what London represents actually precedes them. Mm. So there is an un- understanding that, okay, these people can be useful in terms of our trade, but can we actually trust them Mm. uh, because we know that Britain has done X or Y on the eastern side and has played games that, that in fact, Britain was very well known for breaking treaties. This Mm. was uh, one of the most famous things about Britain was beware of the people who break treaties. Um, As this proceeds over the course of the 19th century, it becomes much more identity politics and race politics. Mm. In other words, that you'll for the first time start seeing the British sort of equated with the sort of absolute archetypal enemy. Mm. You'll start seeing much harsher terms that are used, sort of now ethnicized terms that are actually used uh, by the time, let's say, the 1880s and the Second Anglo-Afghan War happens. Mm. With Russia, it's sort of similar. Um, Russia has had a much longer exposure to these regions as well. Mm, So there are very different sort of, uh, let's say, identity and race politics there. But I think in all of this to say that you do find in the local sources that they are trying to analyze what is happening and how to best use it to their advantage, the same way that Mm -hmm. the British are sending agents who are trying to analyze Mm -hmm. how can we use this thing to our advantage. So it it basically grants agency to more than just the the two big players Mm -hmm. or, frankly, three big players. China's the third big player in this game. Do you think a casual player of this game is capable of understanding this sort of reversal of the dominant narrative about the great game 
by playing this game? You know, at a basic level, of course, because you know, who are you in the game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it would look very different if you were playing Charles Mason, right? Oh, right. Everything would be sort of like this shadowy world where Charles Mason is trying to make sense of things. So mm-hmm. just by virtue of the fact that you are not Charles Mason in this Mason's one of the the better of the lot. Um, well, I would say but, the more common thing here is that you're games playing, like this you'd yeah. play as Britain, Britain, Britain right. exactly. or as Russia. Yes. But here we're not doing that. Right? Yeah, here we're not doing that, right? So you know, you're absolutely right. So if let's say if it were, a, and I'm thinking in terms of a computer game from the vantage point of someone who's traveling yeah. there, or yeah. let's say like a strategy game where you are Britain or yeah. you are someone else, I think that it imme- immediately starts bringing these places a little bit to life. Now, I'm not going to fault the creators of this game here because the point of this game is the point of this game. So, and mm-hmm. we, we have to understand the limitations. Mm-hmm. So, it's very it's obnoxious to actually, you know, go beyond that. But in certain ways there is a reinforcement of certain narratives that are okay. going on here. And mm-hmm. um, so the players who you see here are very much the well-known players who there was a by Peter Hopker called The Great Game, and Mm. it was a kind Mm -hmm. of bestseller for people who were interested in this stuff. It focused in on European sources and pulled out certain figures. Mm. Mm -hmm. And these are very much those figures. Like if you were to read Hopker, I mean, it's a good book, but now, of course, would be seen as problematic because it's Mm. entirely from those like deeply problematic um, accounts. So it's the same players that keep showing up again and again, and they end up looking quite similar as well. So Nasrullah will become Nasrullah the Butcher. This is how he's generally generally known, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to make my own value judgments on Nasr- Nasrullah. He's, mm-hmm. he's a king after all, does what kings do. There's one. So in other words, the cast of characters yeah. is somewhat similar. I think the images in this day and age do bring things to life. But again, the images are very similar to the images that you will find in let's say earlier great game mm-hmm. literature that's based primarily on European sources. And perhaps the, the third problematic here would be that once again, you are talking about a place in terms of internecine rivalries and war, mm. right? So mm-hmm. once again, it's, it's enough to say that, okay, so if you're doing something on Venice, right? Yeah. Well, people know Venice first because they go there on honeymoons. Mm-hmm. And based on whatever Hollywood depictions of the 1940s and then much earlier depictions, right. here you've got a place that's only depicted as a theater of war, right? right. Mm-hmm. So in a sense that that just once again reinforces the idea of this mm-hmm. being a theater of mm-hmm. war. That said, you know, were I to meet the creators of the game, I would never critique them on this because it's a war game, yeah. for God's sake. Sure. So it's a political game. But I'm talking about from a, a broader perspective that there are certain, let's say, especially because the sort of consistent use of certain tropes and themes that reappear in 19th century and late 20th and early 21st century writings on Afghanistan. And each author is very, very well aware today who's writing there and who does like, I did my six months in Afghanistan, you know, that whole (laughs) thing, right? And uh, the barbarians and et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they are all very much aware that they are writing on the backs of these figures. Mm -hmm. And so that way of writing keeps repeating Mm. itself and therefore the themes keep repeating themselves. History repeats itself. Exactly. And then, but the playground is the same playground. It's a place of shadowy wars. It's a battlefield. And it's a battlefield. It's a perpetual battlefield. I do think you just came up with the next big war game, (laughs) the the battle for Venice. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, I mean, this does lead on really nicely to the other question, or the next question that we always ask our guests, which is, what's missing uh, from this game? It's hard to say because there's so many moving parts mm. to this game, and mm. I keep positioning myself, okay, well, let's say you, know, you were to add the merchant networks, mm. right? And mm. there was some way in which, like, your merchant here could impact something over there, yeah. right? Uh, because they immediately can, it's almost like, you know, in Clue where you can like jump from here to here. Yes. So the merchant networks yes. have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's going to mean a lot more stuff on these cards. Yeah. And there's already mm -hmm. a lot of things in these cards. I mean, I could say that that would be a really interesting element to it. Um, I might offer something. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, your research, your yes, book that exactly. you're about to publish, you know, there's not a whole lot of, um, there's not any, I, I, there are women on some of the cards. But there are not any women so far. Hardly, maybe there are some maybe. in the deck um, that didn't come out. But there's not like a women, a, a woman like sort of figure in this. And you were just talking about your research, where you're, you're, how important they mm. were for the distribution of knowledge and and uh, wealth as well, right? And uh, spiritual life, and uh, there those things are are not present here. Yeah, I, there's. Absolutely. In fact, I can take it a couple of steps further. Now, I'm not really working on women in the courts of the, let's say, the Kandahar mm -hmm. court or the Kabul mm -hmm. court, but I'll throw a few things at you that are okay. just of interest. The first book to ever be published, as in like printed, as a lithograph in mm -hmm. Afghanistan, like in the late 1800s, was a book of poetry that's written by Aisha Durrani, who is the sister of one of the kings, I believe. Mm -hmm. And this is happening, what, 1770s, 1780s. So in other words, she is one of the most famous authors of the time. And it's a, it's like a sort of, you know, 200 plus page um, literary classic. It's a masterpiece. So, you know, I know her for, for a fact mm -hmm. because um, poetry was considered the pinnacle of the arts at the time. And mm -hmm. you're doing a lot more when you're doing poetry. The areas that I am more familiar with, like which must have continued these dynamics at this time, and I, I hope to look at it at some stage, was um, Kabul in its time when it first became the imperial capital of the Mughal Empire. Like mm. very soon after, the governor of Kabul was actually a woman who was, this is, we're talking about early, like mid-1500s, was actually sent there to quell a rebellion. And then in the 17th century, you once again have a woman who's a co-governor of Kabul, and then she eventually then takes over from the other gentleman who she was was co-ruling with, and there's each of these figures are playing obviously tremendous roles in terms of army mobilization, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the patronage of the arts, and so on and so forth. So Kabul already has this dimension deeply been built into it. The uh, The issue on one hand is, of course, not very many people have delved into the role of women at the Durrani and the Barakzai courts. But in general, Durrani and Barakzai history is so poorly known, and it's seen as a sort of interregnum period between the period of the great empires and the the uh, rise of the great game, that it's always treated not quite as this, not quite as that. Mm. And... Um, in fact, there's another kingdom that's sitting right there that's also a buffer state and a part of, of the Afghan empire. Uh, it's the state of Las Bela. And right before this area starts properly breaking apart, so in the 1730s, there is the Golden Age is actually under the rule of a queen mm -hmm. who is very well known for fighting on horseback and leading oh. battles. And there are several sayings about her that still circulate in two different languages wow. within that area oh, cool. about that role that she played. 
And she was, in fact, she's still basically considered the the legitimate ruler of the time, even though it's been like almost 300 years or two, mm-hmm. 270 years or 280 years, that the dynasty that took over actually defeated her, mm. exiled her, and they're still not very well liked because of what they did. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, I think one of the challenges with a game that takes on a major historical event like this is that it's mechanically kind of hard to get to those like less covered histories because we can so easily conceptualize the, the, the everything that happened in this game here today yeah. because it's part of that dominant history that things that have not fit into that dominant history that you are working to correct yeah. in your research right yeah. are, are harder to discover for the creators certainly but then extra hard for yeah. the players yeah. to sort of process and even further than that right the very act of gaming in this way historically has a material basis in wargaming in imperial powers in the 18th and 19th century right mm-hmm. so like the very kind of object that we are engaging with has these deep seated um, sort of ties mechanically and formally to a particular point of view about not just this part of the world, but the world. But the world. One, that's exactly why I said that I make sure that my critiques are oh, academic no, no, critiques, no. right? Because they're not critiques of a game itself, because the game is based on war, and we like to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going to hardly be one to turn around and say, like, let's take a whole genre of things and throw it out because it's dealing with violence, because mm. it's a game. So many of the cards have um, cultural significance, Yes, right? There are places of of commerce that are represented. There's some spiritual places. Uh, there, there, are, there are several resources, like Lapis Lazuli, right, is, is, is right on the table right now. It's yeah. a beautiful object that then enriches culture, for you know, cultural spaces, cultural life. Do you think there is enough of that in here to sort of balance out the, the focus on the theater of war going on in the rest of the game? Yeah, I absolutely do. I would buy this game. Let me put it, mm-hmm. let me put it very plainly. I would buy it and, like, I can imagine that several dorks who work on what I work on and I being one of them would come together and actually play this and really enjoy it and like comment on the pictures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Personally, I feel the most important thing is just to familiarize yourself with a different aesthetic and a different set of images, right? I mean, you saw me throughout the game. All I wanted to do is pick Mm -hmm, up the cards and read them and turn them over and be like, oh, I see this here, I see Uh that there, and I recognize this. And it was, you know, tremendously exciting for someone like me who spends most of his time traveling in that part of the world mm-hmm. to actually see those images there. And I think from that point of view, its visual appeal and its, this, its aesthetics are actually strong enough to start or contribute to a process of normalizing a place, right? And normalizing a place, in fact, which seems to be an interesting, variegated, beautiful sort of place, because these are all aesthetically pleasing images. It's not sort of, uh, you know, images of an Arab warrior with a decapitated head or whatnot that you'd often mm-hmm. find in right. the... So, uh, no, no, I, I think it's it's great from that res- uh, perspective. One of the first comments you made about it was that it draws you in. Mm-hmm. Right? The beautiful pieces, the components on a meta level, right? It's 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 beautiful, right? It mm-hmm. feels like multiple times we've been, we're standing around looking at a map together, mm-hmm. negotiating yeah, like how we're going to manipulate these, mm-hmm. these, these forces. And I'm wondering if for you, like an object like this existing in, in the world, right? It, intriguing gamers and young people and people of all ages and families to the table. How does this, as a material object existing in our lives, shift 
our understanding of what's going on in a contemporary sense in this area of the world? It's huge, actually. It's part of something very big. You know, I've traveled all around Afghanistan. I've whatever, 15 different provinces by road. I've never had to use security. I've always been taken care of uh, whenever I've been. Certainly wherever I was coming from right now, it was also taken care of. It was not a difficult place to be. Just you don't act like an idiot and you don't offend people. Mm-hmm. Um, but same goes for New York City. Same way, right, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. You find your way around. You just yeah. don't unnecessarily bump into people mm-hmm. or ask obnoxious questions or you know, pull off their hat and ask them what it's made of, right? So when I would actually often look up places that I had visited, and I'm thinking about like 10 years ago or so, the only images that were associated with each of these places, whether it's Herat or whether it's you know Kabul or all of these places that are on here, would literally be either from the perspective of soldiers or dead bodies, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. across the board, or just sand and desert and like something kind of bizarre. It's like taking a picture of like a back alleyway in Chapel Hill and saying, oh, this is the University of North Carolina. Uh Mm -hmm. Not to say that that back alley doesn't exist. It's there. But, you know, I believe that we as humans, when I first meet you, you know, I'm I'm not interested in all of the, you know, the bad sides of your character. I'd like to meet you as a, you know, as a good, friendly human being. And then when you get to know each other, we then figure out things, but then we can tolerate them. Disappointed. I'm undoubtedly disappointed. This is really really what I'm trying to get down to (laughs) right now. So it's an indirect way of saying it. Yes, but Um, yeah, take the point. Yeah. But so, so you, and at that stage, then you can sort of deal with a lot more of the problems because Mm -hmm. you're approaching it from a vantage point, let's say appreciation or respect or, you know, Mm -hmm. humanization. And, I think just the the introduction of these historical images as alternatives to, I mean, Helmand is a place where people serve generally in the U.S., right? It's generally just a base, and people have not been outside the base. To me, like, you know, growing up in that part of the world and traveling in that part of the world, Helmand is, you know, where sort of great Buddhist monasteries and a little further is the, the cult of the god Zun and a little further is something else and then there's some cool monument and this and that and just because that's how I've been introduced to, to that world. Um, so I think from that vantage point it just offers a very, very alternative set of anchors mm. mm-hmm. by which to understand a world that's literally just seen as dust and, you know, bullets flying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, you know... A Herculean task to to reverse that narrative, mm. right? Because I mean, you, even even you know, it, I, looking up the Wikipedia page about this region of the world, yeah, it's mm. all of that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I mentioned the the term that gets used, the graveyard of empires, mm-hmm. right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, to describe this yeah. part of the world, mm-hmm. and I mean, what a grim, yeah, uh, picture that paints yeah. in one's mind. And, um, you know, then there's not a whole lot of information on any, any site that uses that term to sort of like say, this is potentially problematic. And there's actually yeah. not just mm-hmm. like a bunch of, you know, tombstones to, mm-hmm. to empires there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's actually its own place with yeah. its own rich history. So as somebody who has a deep knowledge about not just um, this sort of like narrative, but all of the other ways in which we could conceptualize this period, right? Has this game shifted your sort of view at all in terms of how you might be able to communicate that knowledge through the form of something like a game. I have been thinking actually a lot about the fact that it would be interesting to start re-narrativizing through this, mm-hmm. through through games. Mm-hmm. And a very easy way for people immediately to, you know, we in our field, 
we're always concerned with this issue of media representation, mm. right? And mm. it's just, we don't want to do it, but mm. we bloody well have to spend mm. the first several classes whenever I'm you know, teaching a course on Iranian history or whatever it is, being like, I know what image you see. Yes, that image exists, but let's put it in perspective. And this is something else that I am that I am doing. Mm-hmm. You know, from that vantage point, like immediately if someone who, let's say, is a student has another set of images to balance out the kind of images that really sell in, in New York Times mm-hmm. and the kind of narratives that sell uh, in, in the New York Times, it makes life easier for people like myself. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that is a first stage because immediately I may learn something that challenges a certain perspective. And then let's say I can just you know, associate it with one of the cards here. I can be like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, that's the picture I associate it with. Mm-hmm. But just to find other anchors at yeah. earlier stages or throughout at different stages, because a game like this is played across the ages, I think is a very effective way of uh, of communicating without being direct. That yeah. you know, this is not oh, Afghanistan is a great place yeah. card deck. It yeah. is something that <laughs> is well, you know, this is something going on. You know, even something as as delicate as this, right? So mm. you've got Bukharan Jews. Um, all of a sudden, someone's like, oh, there are Jews in this area. Right. That's right. a whole narrative, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's a whole field of study that right. immediately people don't recognize mm-hmm. well uh thank you well it's so much so much for joining us thank uh, you i have learned a ton me too from, likewise from this session um, been a pleasure and it's been an absolute pleasure yeah all right here we are after playing pax pamir mm-hmm. with walid uh, we should note that he did not win our subject matter expert has only won once uh, um uh, it was lives the very first episode yeah, that's right well i guess chris won when we played strike because we all won because we all won yeah. but it was a cooperative game doesn't yeah, count doesn't count we Jordan's anti-cooperative I, game i won not, not entirely <laughs> you're a hater uh, <laughs> in any case i won this one by just the hair on my chinny chin chin yeah well um, i mean more than the hair you had a commanding lead yeah, by the end i was I in dead last we'll talk about that in a minute yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that but in any case it was a blast we learned so much drinking from so a fire hose of knowledge yeah yeah uh, of expertise i guess yeah. we should say really wild yeah uh, um, learned a ton uh, wonderful guest uh, wonderfully nice guy uh, and um, we got some scores why don't you start with sharing your meaningful moment okay uh i'll go first so my meaningful moment occurred sort of towards the end uh, it was almost like a post. It was actually after the game was over, in fact. It was like an immediate reflection moment. So mm-hmm. it wasn't in the course of the gameplay, but it was like the immediate meta moment that I had as the game ended. Okay. And this was realizing that I had uh, horribly overcommitted myself to supporting the British oh. in a way that didn't yeah. matter if it, was, it didn't matter that it was the it British. Did. It could have been the Russians, right? Or, this or is why we're going to talk about you being in dead last. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I had <laughs> I had horribly, horribly overcommitted myself to the British. Now, what I had managed to do was deadlock the the map so that no dominance check was That's successful. Right which could have played out for me in the end if I had been able to get enough discs in play to yeah, threaten. But yeah. that was never going to happen no. because it was everything I could do just to keep the British on the board. Yeah. So this is a meaningful moment for me because I've played this game several times. This is a game that I own and that I enjoy. And I've, so this was not the first time I've played mm-hmm. it. And every other time I've played it, I have a different meaningful moment where I realize at some opportunistic hinge point in the game, usually before the first dominance check or right after the first, before the second, that 
oh, the way to win this game is to switch. Yeah, switch allegiances at the last it's second. It's to switch at the last moment and, and turn the tables. Yeah. And not only switch at the last moment, but switch and then be in a better position than the person yeah. that was in there in the first place, right? Yeah. Uh, and every time I've done that in the past, I've had much, I haven't been won all the time or anything, but I've had much more success You've than I had close. today. I had yeah. scored points, let's say. I had zero points in this game. Yeah. He's uh, not even on the map, folks. And He's not even on the I, map. it's because I just didn't ever switch. And so that was just kind of a weird moment where I realized like I knew this about this game. Uh, but I had never experienced it to this extent in terms of like if you single-mindedly just tick, stick to one loyalty and try and play, you are going to experience gridlock, frustration, and loss. Yep. That's what, what the game is going to give you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's reflective, I think, of the, of the sort of political realities that the game's trying to communicate in which uh, necessarily loyalties needed to shift and be played against one another and be opportunistic. So that was my meaningful moment. This is good. I mean, it, you know, it does, it does actually reflect pretty well in the game mechanic reflecting that political environment yeah. it was very wishy-washy mm-hmm. you had to you had to be on, on, and he while he mentioned this you yeah. had to be like sort of on the verge of betrayal kind yeah. of at, at any given time i mean particularly when you're screwing around with the british which is what you yeah. were doing the entire time yeah what's interesting too though is that like actually none of us changed which i think is probably pretty atypical for a game of pax premier mm-hmm. not a single person swapped loyalty throughout the entire i was game. thinking about it I thought he might think about it when he betrayed the one card that yeah. was a British prize. And that maybe, I think he just didn't want to be loyal to the British, probably. That yeah. was the sense I got. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no. <laughs> Which, fair I'm, enough. I'm going to be <laughs> Afghanistan yeah. all the way through. Fair enough, yeah. Uh, but that gameplay-wise, I think that might have been an yeah. interesting choice. That is him. good. That is a good. That is a meaningful moment of yeah. realization. Um, <clears throat> mine has to do with Mr. Barnes here. Burns. Alexander Burns. Uh, Alexander Burns. Um, so we we were playing the game. There's this whole market of cards. They're all coming out, and they're all sort of totally ran- not totally random, mostly random. You know, there's mm-hmm. some, there's some programming in this deck of cards that comes out, but um, this one comes out. Alexander Burns, and I'm just going to read it for the okay, record. Yeah, go for it. Uh, he's a sort of sketchy looking guy here. He's got a uh, wispy little mustache and kind of a knowing look on his face. Okay, okay. And um, he's from the intrigue suit or yes, espionage totally. suit. We should get the name right. What's the suit called? <clears throat> um, the the blue eyeball. I don't remember. You have to look it in the rules. But um, Burns joined the East India Company at 16 and quickly rose through the ranks, aggravating senior operatives like Wade. He advised the British to support Dost Muhammad, but was rebuked. Uh, he nonetheless aided the British coup and was killed when a mob overtook his home in Kabul. It's the intelligence suit. Yeah. And so this this came out, and immediately, Walid was like, mm, this person has been haunting me. <laughs> and um, and we're like, well, say more, you know? And he said, "It's uh, he's just not a pleasant person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he he didn't give us very specific words to describe yeah. this person, yeah. but he did say like, you know, you just don't want to really be around this guy. Uh-huh. You know, he's kind of slippery, mm-hmm. and he gave us this this kind of interesting story about how he, you know, sort of underhandedly did all these uh, amazing things, but really just had to like sort of like scheme his way yeah. to doing it. This card that I'm looking at has another little section that says this special little ability that this person has. That says strange bedfellows. 
for spy travel, meaning when I move my spies around the board, so the spies are inevitably going to hurt someone else. That is the that is the most sort of vicious mechanic in this whole game. So when I'm moving my spies around, I can treat cards that share a region as adjacent. This is like a big deal because typically you can only move spies from one card to the next and it's really slow and they're really cumbersome and you know it just takes a long time for them to move. But this guy allows you to like slip in the back door, you know, and move around and like be slimy and gross and stuff, yeah. you know, just, and it was just a wonderful so moment where it's like, cool. Like, I don't know if, um, I don't know if, you know, the designer was like really had didn't done enough research to like be able to characterize some of the mechanics, some of the, some of the people who mm-hmm. feature in this game with mechanics in the board game. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, bam, this yeah. is doing it. Well, he Walid had a, um, a, an almost visceral reaction to it because he yeah. has he has sifted through the archive on both sides, both in the colonial archival sources and in the archival sources from local uh, places in the region. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he said, "This oh, this person's haunting." Me. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, this is someone who has a presence in the historical record in a way that is uncomfortable and you know not likable. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's super meaningful. I think that the card effects are slimy and gross. Yeah. And so I yeah. loved it. I, I just <clears throat> thought it would match so well with the, the moment that we mm-hmm. were having with Waleed, mm-hmm. you know, cause he did not notice the like special mechanic that this card <laughs> strange has. bedfellow. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. yeah. It, he didn't notice it. And we're like, wait, but look at that. And mm-hmm. he, and then he just kind of like laughed and had a little, yeah. had a good, had a good moment too. Yeah. So, yeah. um, it was great. I acquired Alexander Burns. Yeah. You purchased him and, and, and played him. Yeah. And it ultimately won me the game. Oh, was that your winning card? Yep. Okay, great. So there you go. Cool. Alexander Burns, very meaningful for me. Alexander Burns and Don't Keep Faith with the British. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But Lessons learned. Yeah. My unexpected expertise, though, Mm, has to do with the bazaar. Oh, cool. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. That was, I, that, great, was, that was a great, a great like moment, right? Nugget, so yeah. there's a there's a card that came out um, that is uh, the Kabul Bazaar, and it's I think he's referred to it as the Great Kabul Bazaar, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the Kabul mm-hmm. Great Bazaar, um, and it was a, a place where um, or Grand Bazaar maybe Grand. There we go. Yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, it was a place where a lot of like intellectual richness. Yeah, spilled forth, you know, into the city, I'm sure, but also into the surrounding area and then maybe the entire region. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were we it got brought up because I he was talking about his research mm-hmm. and um, the spiritual leaders yeah. that were involved in all kinds of things. It sounds like just like basically every way of yeah. life and culture, and um, then this this location, right? This very specific space, like, like a university, mm-hmm. like the place mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. get, uh, you know, that we spend most of our time that we are right now that we are sitting in we right now, sitting on a university right? campus. And right it just, now. it was like this wonderful little, um, bit of information that he shared that shed a light mm-hmm. on like, Oh wow. Okay. Not only is it a different place than the one we're sitting, it's a different time period. So it, there's, it's a completely different context, and yet there is this sort of effort and energy being poured into um, just sort of like culture and intellectual thought, yeah, yeah. making people feel good. Because he mentioned all this cool stuff about like mindfulness yeah. and you know the study of like medicine and through just like yeah. you know like a connection between mm-hmm. between your state of mind and mm-hmm. the way you feel yeah. and i just I, I mean i was like 
kind of almost like tearing up there for a moment, mm-hmm. just being like, wow, that's sounds yeah. really well, freaking awesome. What like, was sign me up. Super unexpected about it in terms of like the, the hook for the segment. What was unexpected about it for me was the way in which a card depicting a grand bazaar, uh, like he, his expertise was able to sort of shift my conceptualization of that social space in a way that was much richer and varied totally. than, than the word bazaar, which I don't think is any fault of like the game designers in this game because it was called the bazaar, right? That mm-hmm. is what it was. Mm-hmm. But that word for me in other sources has been absorbed sure, just simply as like a stand-in for commerce. So I have a kind of I have had a, like an operate a very reductive operating conception of what a bizarre space would have been like in this part of the world, yeah. right? And so it was really cool to get that ex- expertise from him that helped me sort of expand how I would conceptualize that as a social space. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the you know the Orientalist sort of uh, mindset yeah. that would depict a bazaar in any Middle Eastern setting. Uh-huh. Would have it be just like oh haggling fruits yeah you know and crap like that commodities I mean, we all know that's that commodities that sales deals you know? haggling maybe some theft I mean these yeah. are the tropes you get yeah. in like Aladdin or things like right. this right totally yeah. totally yeah. and and games perpetuate that and yeah. so you know I don't know that this game by itself is is really shifting that narrative about that particular space no 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 no, no. but his expertise his expertise did shifted yeah, it for me for sure my unexpected expertise had to do with the knowledge he brought about the archival sources in the imperial records yeah. that they were using the language of games in the contemporaneous sources to conceptualize the social space of afghanistan as a playing field yeah. and that that is not something that's simply put uh put upon the history after the fact by historians to try and narrativize what happened but that in fact that was like an active way of understanding the space that was producing certain effects that were probably most of them pretty unhealthy for the region and for the communities and and societies that live there if the imperial powers are seeing it as a chessboard in the the very documents at the time in which they are sort of engaging with the peoples and the cultures it makes me feel pretty sad that 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 term exists yeah about this the great thing. game. Yeah. 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 You know, and it just, it makes me also feel pretty sad about our conceptualization of warfare generally, mm. right? It's, it's a kind of a harsh reminder of the way that people in power use resources mm-hmm. that they have at hand to play the game of war. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a, it's a helpful and um, not unappreciated reminder also, I think, which is what came out in our conversation with him of like the deep implication of warfare and play. Uh, in the history of gaming, generally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right, it's something that we should always remind ourselves of. That, like, the time at which the imperial authorities were describing this region as a playing field and conceptualizing right. the inter- interactions there as a game was also right. the time at which, like, modern board gaming was emerging out of like imperial powers staging yeah. training modules, essentially, like on a tabletop, right? Yeah. Um, so, it is an interesting reminder of those nested histories um, for us. I think. For yeah. the record, this is our first board game i think on the show our first like war game yeah. that could be characterized as yeah. a war game yeah that must be true yeah. unless you count the class warfare of strike which is not what you mean class war yeah uh but that must be true right yeah. uh pots no uh yeah. critical care no bee lives uh bee lives there's no. some battling going on terraforming mars not really no yeah so that's yeah so maybe that's only yeah only so here we go we're, we're already we're okay. already bumming ourselves out when we really stop to think about <laughs> how no, and this i don't is, think this that's a knock on the game at all but no 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 I, because yeah. because i think this is actually the the perhaps w- one of the best representations of warfare i've ever experienced mm. in a mm-hmm. game mm-hmm. Right. certainly one of the most thought-provoking yeah totally yeah 
I mean, yeah. I, you know, like how do you? I think you... I, I not to get too far afield, but there is that one game, uh, the Grizzle, the Grizzle. Is that what it is? I don't know. That's also a pretty interesting representation yeah. of warfare. Interesting. Not played it, but yeah. maybe we'll check it out. Um, uh, okay. Okay. Subject matter score. Are you ready for so this? So what's going to happen here is we're going to reveal our scores simultaneously. Jordan and I have no knowledge of the other person's score. That's right. We've been very uh, careful. <laughs> We've kept it in a sealed envelope. Okay. Three, Three two, two, one, nine. Eight. Okay. Cool. Okay. Nice. So, Great. so Steve, why don't you, said, Steve said nine. I said eight. So why don't you say, uh, say a little bit about your eight? Well, you know, I think I probably would have given it a higher score had I not been as so well-informed by mm. Walid. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think there's a, a ton of great things here um, that are going on throughout the game that really do a lot to character. I mean, we, we just the whole time we're having conversations about the characterization of mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. time period of the space of these people. And so all that is really rich. I think a lot of that, though, just comes from the proper nouns that are going on in this game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I don't think there's anything really working against this game, giving it a a high subject matter score. And for folks, this is a reminder. Um, this is not a review. This is not a review. This is a score that is how well does this game represent this subject, right? Yeah. And and I think a lot of that is just proper nouns and the flavor text and stuff like that. There's nothing working against it necessarily per se. But you know, I just think that some of the cards, especially after talking with Walid. Right, they don't the the way that they interface with the mechanics of the game is a little tiny bit repetitive in some mm. cases. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, they they're throwing out an army, they're throwing out a road, and I don't mm. really understand how that actually connects to that proper noun very meaningfully. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I understand that it just needs to be kind of balanced and work well and things like that. And in some cases, right, I'm looking at one here right now that is like. A very pink card. It's a British card. It's a British Meaning military it patriot. A, yeah, it's Army of the Indus. It's definitely like a, a British military card here. And you just throw out three British military tokens. Awesome. That's a great example of mm-hmm. a card that has a, you know, like a very sort of specific yeah. subject being connected to the mechanics. And I, I think that I some of them just kind of. Ball, I had ball one down. in my tableau as well, which is British regulars add two British armies and the actions it gives me are battle and move. Yeah. Pretty clear, right? Now, what's interesting about those two examples is they are British. So maybe there is something happening here that like, those are more accessible to us to understand the proper mm-hmm. nouns, mm-hmm. right? Maybe if mm-hmm. we understood the proper mm-hmm. nouns on those other cards better because we had a more cultural context for situating them as, specif- as specific, you know, as like the specificity of what mm-hmm. they denote, maybe it would be just as second nature as like, oh, British regulars, I put down two armies, I battle and I move. Of yeah. course I do. Well, here's, you know? here's a good one. Um, I don't really know, understand this one, but I, I suspect yeah. I can make inferences. Yeah. We have one here that's the Lapis Lazuli Mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, when you play that, you get to put down two Afghan roads. Right, so yeah. roads yeah, yeah, yeah. for Afghanistan in this, and so I'm guessing you know the roads or you know they stand in for uh, economic mobility, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and um, so in this case, Afghanistan is the one that's going to prize maybe lapis lapis lazuli the most, mm-hmm. right? And they're gonna you know, it, it, so I I do see a lot of that, but there are a few cards here and there. I'm like, this just seems arbitrary to me. Right, yeah. like it just seems like a they needed a few more cards. They needed to balance out this sort of faction of cards. Mm. They needed. So, I think for that one, I could almost see it being like we need another card that has the gift action. 
Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting that it's a patriot, though. But who who knows? I mean, we are hardly designers. I don't know but, either. I don't know but either. Uh, that's interesting. I totally think that's a fair comment. I think that's totally a fair comment. Let me just say why I gave it a nine. I thought about giving it a ten. Ooh. And the reason I didn't give it a 10 was just because of some of these things you're talking about where it's like ultimately the actions we take get abstracted out. And this is just how games operate, right? Which is right. why I don't think I'll ever give anything a 10. No. Uh, the actions we take get abstracted out into these sort of repetitive gestures that end up inevitably gamifying rather than giving me an immediate experience mm-hmm. of like the subject matter at mm-hmm. play, right? The reason I gave it a 9 which is for me kind of the ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we have a 9.5 on the show. Is, so in, yeah. is in particular uh, due to my own situated sort of choice of like my own reception of this game, my, the, only, the way that I choose to interpret it. And I actually treat it as kind of a meta object. I think mm-hmm. this game is actually not engaging with the subject matter of the actual history of Afghanistan in the 19, early 19th century. I think it, has de- it demonstrates in its design and its approach to that content a historical responsibility and a historical intention. But I think as a game, what it's actually doing is engaging with the historical narratives of that period as a game. Mm-hmm. And what it's trying to do is represent those narratives, that familiar narrative in a way that is actually much more accurate and less biased and less mired in this colonial orientalist viewpoint, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but which is nonetheless accepting the premise of that narrative as a narrative about a game and a battlefield without actually trying to sort of like do the hardcore historical work that like historians such as Waleed Waleed. do, right? right? Which is just like, actually let's blow up this whole narrative because it's super simplistic. And let's think about like all of the things that are going on in this space and that have been going on in this space for thousands of years and how it's like, it really can't be packaged up as like a game. Right. Right. And that in fact, even if we do that, there are super problematic consequences. Right. I think all of that is, I think this game is aware of all that. It's not naive about all that, but it knows its limitations as a game. And it's a wonderfully meta comment to make a game about the narrative of this space as game Mm -hmm. and to make a game which sort of tries to intervene in that narrative in some way, even while maintaining the form of a game on the table. So that's why I I gave it a nine. He he does, I mean, Waleed said it pretty well. Yeah. The point of the game is the point of the game. Yeah. Right. Right. They, they, Cole tried to make a point about history, about this moment in history. Cole Worley, the designer, right, yes. did that, and um, and I think that comes across mm-hmm. very well. Yeah. And you know, like I said too, I felt a little bit like you know a political manipulator standing above a board, yeah. like moving pieces around, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah, totally. you know, you know dispatching, dispatching messages to my court to I say definitely, like go do things. This could have been another meaning, meaningful moment. I definitely had many times today, maybe more than I ever had before with this game, where I was looking at the market cards. And just treating the people there, especially the British patriots, which I was trying oh, yeah. to recruit, as just the most like opportunist, like potentially disposable and opportunistic agents ever. Yeah. I was thinking, well, if I take that now, can I kill it later? Yeah. Uh, will that help me? And it's, how much is it worth? I don't want to pay that much for it. It's a it. wonderful feeling. You know, what does it let me know. do? You know, and I'm looking at these <laughs> Russian cards and these Pennsylvanians. Disposable and these, like, people. Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. just sort of like, mm, I don't know if he's worth it. I'll wait till yeah. he's cheaper and then I'll get yeah. him for free. Then maybe after I use him, I'll just discard him because I don't have big enough court for him anyways yeah. you know those sorts of i was I, having i think that seems to be thoughts, kind yeah. of like a common thing you know you you kind of feel you should feel disgusting when you play yeah. this game yeah you a know? little bit yeah um 
Well, I, you know, like I said, it's, me giving it an eight is not a knock on the game design at all. It's just, it's, you know, I know they're going to balance the game at some point, but no, um, I, I think I have a great time playing yeah. this game every it's a single time game. I play. If it. I was just giving this my personal preference rating of games, I'd be give it a high. 10 out of 10. Be very high. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I totally take your point about the proper nouns. And I do wonder a little bit if that's just a barrier, a cognitive barrier we have because. Uh, it would be a great question for Walid, actually, mm-hmm. because we have such a lower sort of threshold of like cultural awareness and knowledge mm-hmm. uh, that maybe those proper nouns were way more transparent for him in the way that like British regulars is transparent for me. Right, sure. Um, so that's an, but it's a great point because that you know ultimately we are the audience for this game. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's right. It's interesting. Well. It was a pleasure, Steve. Always a pleasure, Jordan. I had a wonderful time playing Pax Memory with you yet again. Yeah, it was a great time. I wish I had won, but uh, but I had had a great time losing. You went on a... I had a lot of fun losing. You tried something (laughs) new and... And it didn't work. You were not rewarded for (laughs) it. Uh, But yeah, I love this game. It was great to finally play it on the podcast. We've been planning this, plotting this episode for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, And so it was great to do it. And I had a wonderful time meeting Waleed and hearing about his uh, wonderful research. and so, yeah. I hope Thank you, you all, all for listening. Yeah, I hope you all enjoy it. And uh, please rate, review, subscribe, mm-hmm. do all those share. things that you're supposed yeah. to do. Share. Really, that's that's mm-hmm. the most important one. This has been Subject Matter Tabletop. I'm Steve Gotzler. And I'm Jordan Tynes. We'll see you around the table. Mm-hmm.